I always knew I'd have kids. I just never intended to become a mother. I'm Dr. Lee Birch, and this is the Rockstar Parent Podcast. I'm a chiropractor, educator, life coach, and mom, although not necessarily in that order. Everyone has their own journey into motherhood. This podcast is devoted to telling my story and sharing what I've found to be successful along the way. Episode 28, how we mold who our kids become, even if we are unaware, we are doing it. Baby milestones are the best. Their first smile, their first laugh, the first time they roll over when they crawl, and the pinnacle of all milestones when they take their very first step. Now, if you're a mom, you secretly, or maybe not so secretly, want their first word to be mama. But my kids, well, they all said papa first. No hard feelings. My husband is a great dad, and he's also the one they all wrote their elementary school Who Is Your Hero essays about. Not gonna lie, that one stung a little bit, but you know, we moms get our moments too. It all balances out over the years. There's also that moment when you wake up and realize your baby slept for almost five, maybe even six hours. That's quite a milestone. But what happens is you get that shot of adrenaline as you run to their crib to see if they're still breathing. And and they are. And so as you calm down, you begin to even feel a little bit like royalty because you're so rested. Well, we celebrate all those milestones, don't we? And rightly so. These are big moments and they add joy to our lives. But do you also remember when your baby discovered their hands for the first time and then they discovered their feet and once they find those things, they go right into their mouths. Then there's this moment when they see a person in a mirror and ultimately recognize it's themselves. Who is that, we ask as we point to them in the mirror. And there's a point in toddlerhood where they start to respond, that's me. What we have here are the beginnings of how a tiny human forms their identity. Honestly, this is a complicated process that plays out over decades, but there are a few things we can discuss about how the beginnings of that identity forms. A person's identity is really the answer to one of life's biggest questions, which is, who am I? Now, we can go very philosophical here and channel our inner Socrates to try to find an answer. But honestly, the answer is truly the pursuit of a lifetime. I mean, I'm 53 years old, and I'm still discovering new things about myself and who I am as I evolve through different phases of my own life. The real questions I want to dive into is not who we are, but how and when our identity begins to form. Exactly what percentage of that identity comes from self and experiences, and then what percentage comes from our environment and how others see us. It's kind of a nature versus nurture sort of thing. 
Well, a child comes to understand who they are from a combination of all of these perspectives rolled together. First, we develop a physical identity, which means I am hands, I am feet, I am eyes, I'm a mouth, and oh look, I have a tongue in there too. You see, babies get feedback as they use all of those body parts that help them make sense of their bodies. We discover that we're a separate person from all of the other people in our world. And also that our world is full of lots of other things like animals, which are also separate from us. Soon, we discover all the amazing things our bodies can do, which leads us into the second perspective that begins to contribute to identity. And that is, I am also what I can do. You know, during those toddler and preschool years, it's all about learning new skills, right? Through trial and error, our children discover activities they are good at and ones that they might need a little more practice at. They figure out what they like to do in addition to what they are skilled at. And so the phrase is, look at me and I can do it myself, become a regular part of the conversation. And our kids are so proud to show us the picture they drew or how fast they can run or how high they can jump, what structure they just built with their blocks, how well they picked up their room and how they ate all their vegetables. Hey, you know, a mom can hope. Well, this is a critical time in development of identity and children who have parents that encourage and support them as they try new things develop a very different aspect of identity than children whose parents ignore them or disparage them. This part of our identity isn't as much as what we choose, but more of what we internalize from what happens around us. And this leads us into a third perspective that forms our identity. And this is how others identify me. One of the first pieces of identity we as parents assign to our children is their name. And often we think long and hard about their names. They can be sentimental or incredibly meaningful, important, strong, inspiring. They can be family names, whatever name we settle on. We also have to make sure the initials work together as well because we don't want our kids' initials spelling out anything embarrassing or unflattering. Am I right about that? So our children's name is this first perspective of identity that we give them. We also need to be mindful of the descriptive words and phrases we use as we talk to our children and about our children. I remember people commenting how beautiful my daughter was as she grew. And because I was a little hypersensitive about my daughter internalizing that it was her physical appearance only that defined her identity, I would often follow up a well-meaning compliment about a physical trait with several descriptive words about her behavior or her character. For example, I might say, 
Well, she's also super smart and funny and a pretty loyal friend too. Now, I know that this sounds a little obnoxious, but in my heart, I felt it was my duty to guard my children's minds before they were old enough to do it for themselves. Labels that adults ascribe to children, especially if repeated over and over again, will be incorporated into their identity as they grow. Many of us might have examples of this from our own childhood. I remember I was in the fourth grade when I heard an adult who I respected tell another adult that I had big thighs. I think the term they used was thunder thighs. I felt embarrassed at the time, but even more damaging than that was that I believed it. And from that moment on and all the way into adulthood, I knew that my thighs were just disproportionately large for my body size. I never even questioned it. And I never ever considered that perhaps all the dance classes I took from the time I was five years old all the way into college might have made them muscular. Nope, completely irrelevant in my mind. Bottom line is they're just big. And there did come a point in my life when I became aware of my own dysmorphia regarding this issue. And frankly, I mean, I just forgave the adult who said it all those years ago. I not only needed to shed the imaginary weight I felt like I carried around on my thighs, but I certainly didn't need the emotional baggage any longer as well. The point is, the things we say about our kids, even if it's just in jest, are powerful. And we need to be careful that we don't program our children's identities to include false ideas, non-facts, or things that we ourselves feel we are lacking. Another trap adults often fall into is describing a child as a good boy or a bad boy or a good girl or a bad girl. We've all heard it said, there are no bad people, just bad choices. And you might think that there's really no difference between saying to your child, you're such a good boy versus you did such a good job. The difference can be subtle to our ears, but the research shows that even to a toddler, those two phrases are worlds apart in what they internalize. In more than one study, children who were praised for doing a good job instead of being a good girl or boy over time grow up to believe that they are very equipped to take on challenges that pop up in their lives. Now, I want to be careful here because, of course, we want our children to grow up to be quote-unquote good people. And by that, I think we mean we want our children to grow up being kind, generous, helpful, dependable, you know, one who follows accepted social conventions. But using the terminology interchangeably, especially when they're young, could cause our children to enmesh their identity with their choices. And the danger here is that if they perform badly on a test at school, then they see themselves as bad. 
And we do not want our children to confuse failing a test with being a failure. So we absolutely need to be more precise in our language as we talk to our children. This concept of good and bad have been around since the beginning of time. But let's commit to keep who our children are separate from the choices that they make. And we do that when we say things like, you did such a good job on that, over saying, you're such a good boy or girl. When we successfully make this switch in our language, our children understand that our love for them is unconditional. We love them no matter what choices they make. We don't always love all of their choices, but that has nothing to do with our love and acceptance of them. If we are not careful about our terminology during their formative years, we run the risk of skewing their identity, meaning they could begin thinking of themselves as bad or good. And this concept has so many implications as your children grow. Think about all the potentially bad choices kids make as they grow into teenagers. And also think about all the healthy choices from food to exercise to sleep habits to study habits to working hard to reach their goals that we want to encourage in our kids. Do not fall into the trap of confusing your children with the labels that you use. We want them to develop a good sense of self even if they make some mistakes along the way, because everybody does. So here are some suggestions for how to do this. When your kids are little, if your child hits another child, instead of saying to them, hitting is bad, what you can say instead is, it's not okay to hit when you're angry. See, what we're doing there is we're separating choices out and labeling choices, not children. If your child is sitting and waiting patiently at the doctor's office, instead of saying, you're being so good right now, what you could say instead is, I love how you're waiting so patiently for the doctor. Thank you for doing that. And by the way, if you ever do say, it's not okay to hit when you're angry, it's a great time to give them a few suggestions of alternate choices they could make that are acceptable when they do get angry. Two tools that are really helpful for guiding our children to positively handle their anger, and I'm digressing a moment here, but I think it's important. Well, one tool is to institute something and you can make up whatever name you want, but the concept is that it's an anger meter. So on a scale of one to 10, where one means I'm not angry at all, and 10 means I'm the angriest I've ever been in my life, you can ask your children to rate their anger. And oftentimes a simple distraction like this not only interrupts the anger cycle, but it also can give you valuable information. If your child tells you they're a two on the anger meter, you might suggest very different coping strategies than if they tell you they're rounding a seven and almost to an eight on that anger meter. 
And it also helps them to learn that there's a difference between being annoyed to being frustrated to being full out mad. There's just a lot of goods that can come out of instituting an anger meter in your home. The second tool you can use after determining how angry they really are is to encourage them to execute some sort of plan to help them calm down. Now, this does mean that you have to come up with that plan in the first place. And you do this as part of a conversation while they're already calm. So together, you brainstorm activities that they love to do and that are enjoyable for them. Could be coloring or building with blocks when they're younger to reading or listening to music or writing in a journal as they get older, whatever it is. Also, never underestimate the power of physical activity when it comes to getting out of negative emotions and opening the door to positive ones. So doing things like playing outside, going to sports practices, things like that. Now, after you've identified a few activities that are effective for your child individually as part of their plan to calm down, then don't ever hesitate to guide your child to use them when necessary. Byproduct here is that you are teaching your kids how to take responsibility for calming themselves down, which no one can argue is an invaluable skill to possess right on and through adulthood. One of the activities I used to calm myself down as a teenager was to play the piano. Now, I'm pretty sure it wasn't a conscious decision on my part to do that. I never remember thinking to myself, I feel stressed right now, so I'm going to go play the piano until I feel better. I never said that, but it was just something that I gravitated toward. Now, The funny thing is my mom noticed and she always said that she knew what kind of a day I'd had by the songs I played and how loudly I played them. So I was very fond of banging out Billy Joel songs and his song Pressure is the song that I banged out when I was feeling very stressed. And when I was feeling happy and calm, I gravitated toward his slower ballads. Now, I recognize I probably just completely dated myself here, but I already shared earlier that I am 53 years old, so there's no hiding that I came of age in the Billy Joel era. You know, I don't know if we can put a percentage exactly on what part of our children's identity is them and what percentage they pick up from the things we say, the experiences they have, how we respond to them, and other things like that. But I don't think we need to know the exact percentage to conclude that we as parents indelibly impact the identity our children develop. And with that fact in mind, let us be more intentional about the footprint we leave in their minds. Let us be more conscious of the messages we imprint, not just through our words, but also through our actions. Let us be more mindful of the legacy our influence leaves in their hearts. And let us remember that when we raise a child, we walk on sacred ground.
If you enjoyed this episode of the Rockstar Parent Podcast, please consider leaving a review and sharing the link with your friends. Remember, you can always subscribe to the podcast as well, so you'll be the first to get notified as soon as new episodes are published. I'm just a girl who was ready to start her family, so I got pregnant and had a baby. But what I learned as I raised my own kids, that is the secret to becoming the parent I dreamed I could be and is exactly what I'm sharing with you. Let's rock this parenting thing together. Thank you.